architectural feature of a federal constitutional order requiring that arbiter was essentially recognized by the framers of the 1982 Constitution when they included the Supreme Court in those two provisions. Welcome back to Runnymede Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kinsinger. Joining me today on the podcast is University of Ottawa law professor Carissima Mathen. Professor Mathen's teaching and research focuses on constitutional law, and she has been involved in such formative charter cases as Vreend in Alberta, Winnipeg Child and Family Services in G, and R.N. Mills. She is the editor of Eamon's forthcoming Canadian Constitutional Law Casebook, as well as the author of the award-winning monograph, Courts Without Cases, The Law and Politics of Advisory Opinions. On today's show, we're discussing her recent 2020 book, The Tenth Justice, Judicial Appointments, Marc Nadon, and the Supreme Court Act Reference, which was co-authored with Professor Michael Plaxton. Professor Mathen, welcome back to Runnymede Radio. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be back. So we're here talking about your book, The Tenth Justice, and I'm wondering before we kind of dive into the substance, whether you can tell us a bit about the background of the book. Uh, I note that it's part of a series by UBC Press on landmark cases in Canadian law. And one of our previous podcast guests, uh, Professor Emmett McFarlane, also wrote a book for this series. So I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked him which is how did you decide to write a whole monograph and not just an article on a single Supreme Court case? Absolutely. I, and in fact, I did uh, write my own standalone article a, a couple of years before we started the process of um, preparing the manuscript. And essentially, you know, one of the things that we had to do uh, for the publisher was make the case as to why this was indeed a landmark decision. It was hmm. relatively soon after the case was, uh, the I should say, the opinion was released in 2014 that we um, started to think about it in earnest. It was around uh, 2018 that we started to write it. And so that's relatively, you know, it's a short period of time to establish something as a landmark case. One of the things that we... One of the things that we talk about in the introduction is that some decisions are landmark from the moment that they land uh, on our on our figurative doorsteps, right? So the patriation reference, mm -hmm. or um, you know, the case cases dealing with uh, the the definition of, of terrorism or something like that in the criminal mm -hmm. code. The the Nadon reference, um, I always thought that it was an extremely significant uh, opinion that was not shared by other colleagues at the time but i think it has become more relevant rather than less chiefly because of the court's approach to constitutional interpretation itself and how mm -hmm. it viewed its own status um, in in canada's constitutional order and i also thought it was first of all an extremely unique moment not only in Canada, but in similar democracies for an apex court to essentially reject a, an appointment um, offered by uh, an, you know, a, a, another branch of government to, mm -hmm. to its, its own membership. You know, we talk a lot about the United States and sometimes we compare ourselves rather smugly to the very fraught 
divi- divisions and fights over Supreme Court appointments. Absolutely. The United States, the United States has never done what the Supreme Court of Canada did in the uh, Supreme Court Act reference. So that in itself, to my mind, makes it noteworthy. But in addition, um, the Supreme Court occupies really a very critical, important role in Canadian law and Canadian politics, in our constitutional order. And when you have a case that goes right to the heart, not only of the court itself, but also the court's relationship with other branches of the state, uh, to me, it was sort of a, a no-brainer that this would was destined to be a landmark case. I'm going to come back to the specifics of the case in the moment, but I want to touch on something else briefly. And, and during your um, your answer just now, you used the term uh, we, and obviously you're referring here to Professor uh, Michael Plaxton of the University of Saskatchewan, who was your co-author uh, for the book. And unfortunately, he was unable to join us today, but he does send along his regards and well wishes. Um, can you just speak a little bit between the two of you, whose idea was it to write the book? And then how did you go about as, as co-authors and as colleagues dividing up the workload? Absolutely. So yes, um, Dr. Plaxton, Professor Plaxton, uh, has been a close collaborator of mine for going on 15 years. And we initially came together to write a piece very, very shortly after um, the the appointment of Justice Nedon uh, in the fall of 2013 to just talk about certain aspects of the Supreme Court Act that we thought were were being glossed over in some of the debate and coverage, which I, I you know, we might come to in a bit. So we we in a very short period of time we wrote and published a short piece in Constitutional Forum that ultimately was relied on by the majority in the Supreme Court Act reference to um, bolster its interpretation of a particular section of the of the statute. Uh, we then we sort of went our own ways in terms of our willingness to deal with the uh, with the reference. I subsequently wrote a standalone article um, called "The Shadow of, of Absurdity." And at the, mo- at the time, uh, Michael joked to me that he uh, would be happy never to mention the Supreme Court Act reference again, which <laughs> I thought was, um, you know, sort of funny. And why, why on earth would I, would I still want to wrestle with it? I, I still mm-hmm. thought there were some things to say. And so it's, it's somewhat funny, really, that uh, in the fall of 2018, so some years later, Michael saw a notice from UBC Press introducing this new series, the Landmark Mm -hmm. Cases series. And he sent me an email and said, what do you think? You know, he, we, evidently he, he did have more to say. And there were a number of things about the, uh, about the particular series that appealed to us. It was calling for relatively short uh, manuscripts. I, at the time was writing another monograph. So uh, it was, it was a bit, um, uh, it was a bit, you know, of, of a step for me to, to think about taking on another book project. But we thought that the parameters were were very workable. And because we work so well together, we, we knew that we could do something. And we we knew as well that there were lots of other aspects of the decision, of the history, of the aftermath, that we thought we could actually pull together to create a 
hopefully compelling narrative that situates the reference within a larger context and indeed shows how it has really important uh, uh, implications for how we think about the court and the constitution. In terms of the uh, writing process, we took lead the, took the lead on different chapters um, at, at the time, and we actually uh, developed a first draft relatively quickly. We did then make extensive revisions in response to some really helpful reviewer comments and actually reworked a number, especially the middle part of the book and completely mm. reworked the conclusion. So uh, we, we've developed a, a collaborative process uh, over a long period of time. And it, it this this project did not present many challenges to our to our ability to, to work together. And it is truly a it is an equal uh, an equal work. So you, you describe this whole case as, as really trying or the book rather is trying to present a narrative. So I'm wondering if you can give us a high level overview of what the court was asked to address here. And you've alluded to this already, because in numerous respects, I think what you're getting at is that there's really no case uh, quite like it in Canada or anywhere else that I'm aware of where uh, a highest court where a Supreme Court was more or less asked to provide an opinion on the eligibility of a potential candidate for its bench. That's that's right. So just to, to lay out a couple of facts that might be helpful to people, um, the, the Supreme Court is is governed by uh, the Supreme Court Act, which was enacted as ordinary law by the Parliament of Canada. It is the successor to um, numerous acts over the years, beginning in 1875. And part of that uh law contains sections governing the composition of the court. So the act says that the court shall have nine members and three of those members shall be from the province of Quebec. And then there are two sections that set out um, the qualifications, which are sparse. Uh, they're essentially to be um, to, to, to be a member of the bar. And then for Quebec, the, the candidate must be from Quebec, and, and I won't go into the, the details of the language, but they're really quite sparse. Mm -hmm. And so the history of Supreme Court appointments in Canada has really been uh, the prime minister making a selection. And the entire process has re has been relatively shrouded. Uh, in we, we do not have a formal role for parliament um, or indeed for the provinces, although there are consultations that have gone on in various forms over the years. What happened was that uh, a member of the court retired, Justice Morris Fish, who was from Quebec. He had been appointed from the Quebec Court of Appeal. And to replace him, uh, Prime Minister Stephen Harper uh, nominated Justice Marc Nadeau, who was from Quebec, uh, had practiced in Quebec for a very long time, but at the time of his appointment was sitting on the Federal Court of Appeal. And the particular provision that uh, relates to the three seats guaranteed to the province of Quebec, and Quebec is the only province that is mentioned in the Supreme Court Act as having this allocation of seats. Right. The particular provision says that the, um, the candidate 
should either be a an advocate, so I e a lawyer mm -hmm. of the Quebec bar for ten years, or should be uh, someone who is among the uh, the judges of the superior courts of Quebec. So Justice Nadeau had been a member of the Quebec bar for many years, but he had retired. Of course, he had he had released his membership. Uh, when he was appointed to the bench and he was not on a court in Quebec, he sat on the Federal Court of Canada. Uh, the Federal Court of Canada has produced several uh, nominees that have been elevated to the Supreme Court, but never directly for a Quebec seat. And the question really had never arisen. Uh, there are debates as to why, like whether prime ministers at some level understood that there might be a problem uh, or it just had the, the situation had not presented itself. In any event, when Justice Nadeau was nominated, there was some initial surprise and disquiet because he had not been among the names generally bandied about both in Quebec and outside Quebec as the pool from which you would expect a nominee to be drawn. And so as we note in the book, we go through whether some of the criticism that he faced in terms of his own qualifications was fair. But then mm -hmm. more seriously, a question arose as to whether he was actually eligible under the Supreme Court Act because he was a former member of the Quebec Bar who was not serving on a court in Quebec. Uh, Ultimately, and so I, 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 that was the issue. And so what happened was that the government both put a reference to the Supreme Court of Canada to, to decide this issue. Um, that sort of leapfrogged a legal challenge that was filed in federal court challenging the, the, the legality of the appointment. Uh, but at the same time, the federal government appended a provision to the Budget Implementation Act of 2013 to essentially amend the language of the Supreme Court Act to make it clear that you could be appointed whether you were a current or former member of the bar. So it didn't matter that Justice Nadeau had retired mm -hmm. because he had satisfied that 10-year uh, period. I should point out that by this time, Justice Nadeau had actually been sworn in. Uh, but he never sat a day on the court because once all these legal proceedings emerged, the Supreme Court said that uh, he would not be, he had agreed to essentially uh, uh, not sit on the court until this matter was resolved. So the reference that was put to the Supreme Court asked two questions. First, whether on its face, the original language of Section 6 of the uh, Supreme Court Act included former members of the bar? And then second, uh, was it within the authority of parliament to declare that uh, the, the eligibility in section six um, could, be, could be so described? Because the two amendments that I, the, the, the two provisions I, I talked about in the Budget Implementation Act were styled as declaratory legislation Declaratory mm -hmm. legislation uh, is a legislative tool whereby the parliament states that the law is to be interpreted as if it has always been read a particular way. So it is not 
technically an amendment in that it always is seen as having retroactive effect. And of course, this would be important because Nadal had already been nominated. So even if you wanted to amend the Supreme Court Act so that going forward, it wouldn't matter if you were a former member of the bar, that wouldn't necessarily touch Nadal himself. And so they styled it as declaratory legislation. So those were the two issues. On it, as it, as it originally stood without this declaratory step, could, was Nadon always eligible or was it open to Parliament to enact this special tool, declaratory legislation, to essentially require the courts to interpret the legislation so that it would always have included former advocates? We're going to get to the the legal implications of this reference in a minute, and and talk about some of these technical aspects of the reference that we you know you were just describing. But I wanted um, before we move on to that, I just want to back up a bit and, and uh, talk about something that you alluded to because you and Professor Plaxton both note in the book that Justice Nadal's appointment attracted a level of political scrutiny that was uh, up until that point almost never seen in a Supreme Court of Canada appointment. And and you just said this a moment ago as well, that um, arguably Justice Nadal was subject to an unfair level of scrutiny. Can you unpack what you mean by this a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So um, we started to see some of this criticism or suspicion of appointments, I would say, um, you know, in the modern context, beginning with the appointment of uh, beginning with the appointment of uh, Rosalia Bella uh, in in two thousand in in two thousand four, um, where there were accusations that the Liberal government at the time had appointed someone uh, very sympathetic to their ideology and indeed had engineered an appointment to affect the direction of, a, of another really important decision of the same-sex marriage reference. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I just want to point out that there had been there, there had been criticisms of certain judges. We also saw a criticism against Justice Michael Moldaver when he was appointed um, because he at the time was admit, acknowledged he acknowledged that he was unilingual. Uh, he was he he did not have a strong uh, knowledge of of French, and the his questioning by by members of Parliament, which was essentially an an, an ad hoc process in the sense that um, Parliament couldn't veto the appointment, they could they mm-hmm. could question them. Um, it was noted for having some very pointed very pointed um, que- you know questions directed at him about his knowledge his his knowledge of French, but if you know, these are separate from the legal qualifications or the soundness of the appointment of someone as a jurist. Mm-hmm. And that is what we did start to see circulate around Justice Nadeau. I think, um, you know, and I should just say from the outset that over the course of writing this book, I got to meet Justice Nadeau a number of times. Um, he was incredibly gracious. And I agree with people who say there is no question that he was qualified to sit on the Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court is such a rarefied space that people expect a certain kind of candidate to be appointed, someone who is just on the on the minds of people when they think of Supreme Court candidates. And I think it is fair to say that Justice Nadon was not in that group. So then the question becomes, I mean, this is an awesome power of the prime minister. Why would mm-hmm. he appoint someone like this? And when people looked at Justice Nadon's record, they perceived a more conservative kind of judge, i.e. a judge who would be 
skeptical of some of the judicial review functions of the court that might cause it to uh, overturn or reject decisions of legislatures or indeed executive actors. And so someone who would be more deferential. And they pointed in particular to one case he decided um, involving Omar Khadr, who um, is of course a, a somewhat famous or infamous figure in Canada, very controversial, involving his questioning in Guantanamo Bay by uh, Canadian agents, which was alleged to violate the charter. This was heard by a number of judges, including the Supreme Court of Canada, and Justice Nadone was the sole judge to find that what the Canadian government did in their interactions with, with Omar Khadr in Guantanamo Bay did not actually violate his charter rights and that uh, the executive should not be required to press for his repatriation to Canada, make, make, a, make a, uh, a treat, an entreaty to the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. that, so the combination of those two positions was seen as, aha, the Omar Khadr case was a, you know, a, a, a flashpoint in the um, tenure of, of Stephen Harper, and this was the one judge who seemed to be very supportive of the government of Canada, and that's why he appointed him. We, you know, take take a, a slightly different view. I mean, it's true that Justice Nadone did have the most skeptical approach to the charter argument, but in terms of ordering the executive branch to um, to try and get Omar Khadr back to Canada, it should be noted that the Supreme Court of Canada itself did not go that far in its remedies. So. Justice Nadeau's uh, posture on the remedy was in effect endorsed by the Supreme Court of Canada. So we think that the picture there is a bit more nuanced and we just don't have enough evidence to say, you know, that's why Stephen Harper appointed him. When you look at some of, uh, of his other decisions, yes, there are some more restrained uh, judicial rulings, but we just didn't think that there was quite enough on the, on the record at the time to support some of the some of the insinuations, and right. we think that it was more about the prime minister than about Nadeau himself. Right. So, so on that point, there, there's a really interesting quote at page 180 in the book, um, where you and Professor Plaxton do argue that quote behind every judicial decision presented as a neutral exercise in legal reasoning and interpretation is a decision made by a politician that this person should hold that authority, that he or she has the values and skills suitable for someone holding judicial office and that others with perhaps equally impressive credentials do not, end quote. And, and that's obviously talking about uh, the, that prerogative um, in terms of uh, judicial appointments. And so we were just talking about that with regard to speculation about why perhaps Prime Minister Harper uh, nominated Justin Nadal, Justice Nadal. Um, but building off of that comment, uh, it seems to me that it's one that's still very relevant. And over the past few years in particular, there's been a fair a bit of an ongoing debate within the Canadian legal profession and academy about whether it's appropriate or helpful to describe members of the Supreme Court in ideological and semi-partisan terms like conservative or liberal. And I'm just curious, what's your take on this whole debate? So... I think it's a complicated question and a complicated thing to assess. Um, I would assert that we still do not have a 
partisan tenor to Supreme Court appointments. And I think we do need to separate Supreme Court appointments perhaps from other courts. And, you know, we don't have to go into that. Uh, so the conservative versus liberal to the extent that it relates to um, large C and large L in terms of party affiliation, I don't, I don't think that's that helpful in terms of determining why a particular choice is made. I should say that there has been research done in the past, you know, 30 years, 40 years ago to indicate that there, there was an unsettling uh, pattern of uh, judicial appointments in some ways reflecting more generic party support, for example, in, 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 in donations. But uh, I don't think it's been that overt. Mm -hmm. And certainly, I don't know how helpful it is at this point to really identify conservative versus liberal as having a particular perspective with respect to judicial review or the Constitution, because I think there's a lot of um, fuzziness in that in the Canadian context. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm not a fan of it. That, And I certainly don't think that the prime minister who appoints you um, should we, should, we don't have the evidence to show that that invariably leads to a particular posture of a particular jurist. I, I don't think that's, that's the case. Um, that said, uh, you know, judges, of course, have perspectives and philosophies, and we are entitled to look and see what those are. We are also, though, um, entitled to expect them to be able to manage those pre-existing factors and accommodate it into their essential judicial function, which is to try and assess the issues that come before them as impartially and as in, in as open-minded a way as, as possible. Um, yeah, sorry, were you going to say something? Oh, no, I was just going to say it's a really, it's a really good point. And I think that this really cuts both ways. It, there's often, I think, um, a, a tendency that you see to to put judges into these boxes but even if you if you want to try to use you know those kind of catch-all labels like liberal or conservative uh once you kind of start looking at the judges that are supposedly in each respective camp i think it becomes clear quite quickly that yes they have um particular judicial philosophies uh but you know there's there's a lot of nuance and even disagreements within uh between members uh between judges who who supposedly belong to the same camp so i i, I share your your view here that i wonder how helpful it is to to categorize judges along these lines i i think that's absolutely right and just as a, a little aside so i'm currently um preparing a presentation and writing an article for a, a symposia on um Rosalia Bella, and I've been asked to look at her criminal jurisprudence. And, uh, you know, people may put Rosalia Bella into a particular box, but the couple of decisions I'm looking at, and these are just straight substantive criminal law cases, she was the one that took the most traditional, classical criminal law position hmm. that um, really insists on a particular construction of criminal offenses that is extremely favorable to to the accused and insisting on a very high standard for the crown to meet uh going so far as to pen solo opinions in that matter so i you know just 
you, it's really, um, it's very tempting to put the judges in those boxes. And once you start to get into the actual breakdown of cases, um, it is rare that you will find a judge who, 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 you know, sits within that box very comfortably or, or, um, you know, completely getting back to the quote it, it is one of the most uh consequential powers that any prime minister exercises and i think it would be naive to envision a prime minister who is a political actor although as i like to argue is also a constitutional actor it would be naive mm-hmm. to assume that that person does not have certain views or visions about what the supreme court should do what it how and how it should develop and and will not seek to to find someone who at least does not pull against that too much um but the the idea that uh you know they're going to appoint someone or that they commonly in the canadian context have appointed someone because they want them to rule in a particular way i just don't think that that's a really strong tradition and i don't think that many of the appointments we've seen necessarily bear that out. Um, So I don't think that that's yet, that's a helpful way to look at it. I will say that we're in an interesting moment with the current Supreme Court. We have a relatively new Chief Justice. We have had a fair bit of of, um, turnover. And we are seeing perhaps, I think, sharper divisions uh, Mm. on the court. And that's something that the Chief Justice says he's quite comfortable with. And so we may be perhaps mistaking uh, doctrinal or even interpretive divisions as reflecting something about the appointment process or about how the Supreme Court is itself developing, that our conclusions are likely premature. And this was something that was noted um, perhaps more toward the end of the McLaughlin years of the court, that uh, the court was releasing quite a few, um, not only unanimous decisions, but quite a few um, decisions by the court uh, without um, individual authors attached to the specific reasons, even when they were unanimous. So it, it may well just be that we're uh, still getting used to this this new normal and uh, a slightly new flavor on the court, as you say. I, yes, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the... Uh, <laughs> One of the funny things about the Supreme Court Act reference is that uh, it, it was uh, it was ultimately uh, a a six one decision, and um, because of that, the it could not be rendered um, by the court, uh, and so instead. But because the six judges in the majority wanted to signal that they were equal authors, you had this very unusual listing of all of their names, which uh, in some quarters was taken because of what the court did, which was ultimately find that Justice Nadone was not eligible. Um, it sort of gave this unfortunate impression that you had the six judges ganging up to... <laughs> Really signal their intention to um, uh, stick with to Justice Nadeau, as it were. But really, I think the, the, the problem was that they wanted to issue it per curiam, but of course they could not. And so uh, the, the only other way to do it was to have it be a, a jointly issued opinion. 
so I want to turn now in the remainder of our conversation to the actual substance of the reference. And we've discussed this a little bit already. But in essence, a majority of the court held that any attempt to amend the eligibility criteria set out in the Supreme Court Act was subject to the unanimous consent of Parliament and the legislatures per Section 41 sub D of the 1982 Constitution Act. And it held this on the basis that the court itself is an essential part of Canada's constitutional architecture. And I think this is a really fascinating point because it suggests that certain features and perhaps unwritten principles of the Constitution may in fact be placed beyond uh, ordinary legislative amendment. But at the same time, when I look at this, you know, what I struggle with is that we're not so much talking about an abstract unwritten principle per se, but a specific legislative provision within a piece of legislation that has seemingly been elevated to the level of constitutional text. So I want to ask, in your view, is this case really about things like unwritten principles, or is it more broadly about this sort of concept of constitutional architecture that the court seems to still be kind of grappling with and trying to understand? It's a great, complicated question. Um, I read it as being more oriented towards architecture and it's interesting to note that, of course, the puzzle is that the amending formula mentions the Supreme Court of Canada in two places, notwithstanding the fact that the Supreme Court itself was never expressly entrenched in the Constitution of Canada, either in 1867 or in 1982. And indeed, its enabling legislation um, was always considered ordinary law. And in fact, that enabling legislation has been amended on numerous occasions uh, by Parliament. So one of the arguments that has been made about Part 5 is that was it sort of an entrenchment sub silentio? So the very fact that it was that the court was mentioned, does that in itself um, essentially answer the question that everything that falls under those two provisions uh, is now subject to, to uh, essentially is now protected uh, by the Constitution. And the court, the, the majority did not accept that argument. It went back further to the actual ascension of the Supreme Court to the position of the apex court in a federal system where there must be an arbiter for disputes between the orders of government. And so while the court does not give an exact date in which the court in which it would have assumed uh, a different status than just being an, uh, enabled by an act of parliament, in essence, a statutory court, it seems to put a lot of stress on the um, uh, revocation of appeals to the Privy Council in 1949, wherein the court became the final court of appeal. And then other um, uh, signals over the next uh, over the next forty or so years, where the court was increasingly invested um, with the authority to decide its own docket and uh, to become a court of uh, really a court that was not so much focused on correcting errors but really setting uh, legal principles for the country as a whole. And what it says is that, so that architectural feature of a federal constitutional order requiring that arbiter was essentially recognized 
by the framers of the 1982 Constitution when they included the Supreme Court in those two provisions. So unlike some of the other cases where you have reference to unwritten principles or conventions or something like architecture, which is, of course, it, itself a, a feature that exists independent of the text, there are here textual hooks um, that render this a little bit a little bit different. I would also say that while they do not expressly mention it, I have to think that the principle of, of judicial independence animates mm -hmm. a lot of this part of the reference, um, where the court, I, the majority, I think, was discomfited by how it had been drawn into um, the executive's battle uh, once, or the executive's mess, if you will, once the um, controversy over Justice Nadeau, um had begun. And this point about the court being an arbiter of federalism is also significant because, of course, the issue at the heart of this um, dispute over Section 6 of the Supreme Court Act is essentially a question of federal-provincial relations because it involves the province of Quebec which from the outset of discussions of the Supreme Court in the Confederation debates and ongoing was a site of much controversy and disquiet within that region of the country, which of course has been foundational to how mm -hmm. we have built the nation of Canada. So I think all of those things combined to produce this, um, what is fairly described as a jaw-dropping result in that part of the reference. We've talked about how the um, there's been kind of shifts within the overall culture of the Supreme Court, um, arguably since this case was handed down, and, and we've seen a, a considerable change. So, and, and, and since that time, we've seen a majority of the court that's, you know, um, and I, I, while I appreciate that this case wasn't really about unwritten principles, uh, it's taken a more uh, pessimistic view of unwritten principles, a majority of the court and uh, even though it continues to employ this language of constitutional architecture, which we saw recently in uh, in the city of Toronto uh, ruling, which which did see a, a divided uh, five four court over some of these issues, so I, I I'm curious for your sense here whether you think the outcome of this reference would have been the same today if it had been presented to the court as opposed to eight years ago. It's. Counterfactuals, of course, are notoriously tricky things to navigate. Um, you know, it. There were other ways to 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 approach the issue. For example, you could have just taken Justice Moldaver's uh, analysis, under which someone in Nadone's position would be considered eligible and therefore answer that first question in the reference and then say that the second question does, does not need to be answered mm -hmm. uh, because the Supreme Court has already asserted that power in the context of advisory opinions. Uh, and I I suspect there may, have, there may be a few more judges who would be willing to sign on to that. I don't know if it would be enough to materially af affect the outcome because what you get to then the unstated question that I think, uh, you know, the federal government didn't really have a good answer to in the hearing was, well, if there's no constitutional protection for the court, then can you abolish the court? 
it's the same question that was raised in the context of the the Senate reference. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me, while that was not squarely raised on the facts, it is an implication about which I just, I, I suspect that a majority of judges on the Supreme Court would be seized of that question and the implications of, um, you know, es essentially confirming that notwithstanding the the role the Supreme Court has, has assumed since 1949, notwithstanding the, you know, strictures of the supremacy, supremacy clause, et cetera. In fact, the Supreme Court is just a, a, a statutory creature that is completely subordinate to the will of parliament. I'm not sure that that you would have judges that would be very comfortable with that with that um with that result but it's it's true that um you know there there are many persons who are quite supportive of justice moldaver's opinion and it mm -hmm. is possible that it would have attracted uh more support and and one of the other kind of perhaps um abolition of the court would have been uh, a bit extreme. But one of the other things, uh, fears that you you reference in the book is the prospect of court packing. Yes, that's right. Court packing, uh, expanding the size of the court, um, making all kinds of, of additional uh, changes to the court, um, removing the court's uh, position as final arbiter of certain questions mm -hmm. um you know so th there are there are those things those things as well that um would they would all potentially be on the table and the 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 issue here of course is they would be on the table at the discretion of only one federal actor uh, and I, I mean one actor in the federation yes uh to the exclusion of all the other actors and that's something i think that is is sometimes not given enough um, attention, especially by critics of the reference, which is that this is ultimately about a balance of powers between all of the actors in this federal system. And so the, you know, the question is not, can federal court judges rightly assume any position on the Supreme Court? The issue is, do the provinces um, have a right to a say in changes to this essential institution? Mm -hmm. So I suppose conversely, you and Professor Plaxton at page 181 make a, an interesting remark that, quote, Insur in ensuring that parliament could not undermine the court, the reference had the perhaps unintended side effect of choking off reforms that arguably would have heightened the court's legitimacy and effectiveness, end quote. What are some of the sort of future reforms to the Supreme Court that you think might be stymied by the outcome of this reference? So, you know, not I, I'm not taking a position on the merit or wisdom of any of these, but there, with respect to composition, there are increasing calls to ensure, for example, that there should be a reserve seat for an Indigenous jurist. Uh, that is something that we have heard repeatedly. That is not possible to do outside of establishing some sort of custom and to have that take root. Um, it is clearly not uh, a custom now. And um, there are calls by very serious minded people that that needs to be uh, something that is done. Um, you know, the problem is then how, well, changing the composition is, is, is not possible absent, uh, you know, unanimous, unanimous amendment. 
but even some other uh, features, some other changes that I don't think would trigger Section 41, the unanimous procedure, but perhaps the general amending formula, if you wanted to make changes to the advisory opinion uh, function of the court in some mm. way, uh, if we wanted to require the court to issue reasons for its leave decisions, if we wanted the court to change some of the ways that it, it um, manages uh, appeals and so forth, those I think are, there's a question as to whether they would fall under the uh, features that are now protected under the general amending formula and, and whether the court would, would uh, feel some, uh, some protectiveness of that. Uh, and, and of course, and you can also, you can make the argument, are those changes to which it is reasonable to require you know, a clear majority of provincial support to make that change, or a point that that this was something that I something that sort of I inserted into into the the book at this point. Are there certain changes to the Supreme Court over which the federal seat of government, i.e., the Parliament of Canada, is best placed to reflect, you know, a consensus of the country, and and perhaps mm. the provinces do do not need to have that that role. So. There are some changes that, that, you know, they're both compositional, but also uh, structural in terms of what the court does, where there's a now I think um, it's become very much a no go zone because, of course, the whole prospect of constitutional amendment um, gives everybody a migraine. Now, I don't think that that's a healthy attitude for our country to take with respect mm -hmm. to constitutional amendment, but it's a political reality. Well, it sounds like that might be the conversation of uh, the topic of a future conversation. But Professor Mathen, I want to thank you for for joining us today on the podcast. And you're you're obviously uh, no stranger to running meet events and conferences and book projects. Uh, so we really appreciate you taking the time to be here uh, today. If people want to pick up a copy of the Tenth Justice, where can they do so? So it is available through UBC Press. I believe it is also available on Amazon. Excellent. Well, thank you again for joining us today. And uh, we look forward to hopefully hearing from you again soon. You're very welcome, Chris. Thanks for listening. Runnymede Radio is a program of the Runnymede Society, a nonpartisan organization of Canadian law students, lawyers, and scholars committed to constitutionalism, freedom, and the rule of law. Our podcast is edited by Thomas Falcone and produced by me, Christopher Kinsinger. Follow us on social media and stay tuned for more exciting interviews with leading Canadian jurists and scholars, including some upcoming special episodes guest hosted by Runnymede student chapter leaders. So long for now.